Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Alyssa Jaffe is a partner at Seven Wire Ventures, where she focuses on investments in digital healthcare and technology-enabled services that empower consumers to be better stewards of their health in today's changing healthcare ecosystem. Alyssa sits on the board of Iago Health and Higgy and is a board observer with Zerigo Health, NOCD, Jasper Health, and Recovery One. Alyssa's prior experience in venture capital includes her time as an investor at Pritzker Group Venture Capital, Hyde Park Angels, one of Midwest's largest angel organizations, and Healthbox, an early-stage healthcare innovation firm, supporting their accelerator program called The Studio. Melissa is also a co-founder of Transparent Career, a 2016 NBC-winning company focused on helping people make more data-driven career decisions. Melissa holds a bachelor's degree in marketing in Spanish from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Thank you again for, for joining us today. Um, so... So based on looking at your background and everything, you are currently at Seven Wire Ventures and you're a partner there. Um, and Seven Wire Ventures is, is focused on building and investing in early digital health companies. So could you walk us through what was your first entry into, into digital health? Sure. So I've been in digital health my entire career. So I actually started at a company called the Advisory Board Company. They are a healthcare consulting and technology firm based out of Washington, DC. And really what I did was focus on launching new technologies and doing solution selling for large health systems. So I had quite an extensive travel regimen where I would go around, meet with a number of senior executive teams, leadership teams, board members, and really understand their pain points in healthcare and identify ways and areas in which the advisory board could help solve those. Mm-hmm. And how did you get expo- get this opportunity? So I joined the advisory board straight out of undergrad. Um, so I had a connection of a, a friend of mine, sister who worked there. Um, I was really interested in the company I found a way um, into a warm introduction. I entered the interview process. You know, they recruited a number of college campuses too, so they had quite a robust um, recruiting recruiting engine. Um, And, you know, X number of interviews later, I I flew out to DC, uh, interviewed in person in a super day and ended up with my first job. And then I uh, continued to get promoted throughout. And I actually stayed at the advisory board up until I ended up leaving to go to business school. Got it, got it. And and since then, you've had various operator roles within, within healthcare as well as investor roles. I think one of the roles that you had was at Healthbox. Um, and they had, I think Healthbox also has an accelerator program called Studio. So what, what was that experience like helping these entrepreneurs kickstart their, their ventures? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that um, along with a, another small fund, um, High Park Angels, I were sort of my first two forays into the venture capital world and really understanding the symbiotic relationship between entrepreneurship and, and venture capital investing. I loved being at HealthBox. I actually helped relaunch the studio and change the model and mm. think through, you know, how we could be successful in the recruitment of of early stage healthcare companies to be part of the studio program and really provide resources and opportunities to drive value. Um, it was fantastic to, to get to work with some of these companies. And for me, you know, I get a lot of utility around helping our portfolio companies. It's where I spend a lot of my time. I'm happy to talk more about Seven Wire and you know our yeah. model, but um, this, this for me was sort of the, the first piece of really starting to dig in the weeds with some companies in more of a truncated but accelerated fashion. And um, I had no economic value in doing so. Um, and it's, you know, to this day, I, I look back some of those early companies that I recruited. Uh, Redox was one of the companies I recruited. Everlywell was one of the companies I recruited. I mean, some, some very big names now in healthcare that have done exceptional things. And you know, alongside the HealthBox team, I think what we really, our goal was to say, hey, let's open up our network, um, you know, our resources, and really with the goal of trying to drive growth and opportunity for early stage digital health companies. You had these operator roles before you went into venture capital. Now, I think a lot of time, a lot of times people want to make that transition but um, they're not sure how to. What would be your recommendation for, for making that transition? I think the, the best part about venture capital is there's not one straightforward path that people from all walks of life can be really successful in this job and bring a lot to the table. And diversity of thought is incredibly important in what makes it a, a strong venture capitalist. And so I think that there's, there's certain foundational skills that often can be really helpful as part of the journey. Um, you know, for us, we're an operator-driven model. So we're very concentrated in our approach. We do less deals and we, we focus on helping our companies to grow. We deploy more of our fund into each company. We effectively, you know, pick our winners and, and back them quite strongly. And so it's really important for us that the, the partners of Sevenwire all have operating backgrounds of which we can ensure that we dive in heads first and we know mm -hmm. what we're talking about because we've all built companies before and, and we can really add value. Um, you know, later stage venture capital opportunities where, you know, there may be some more financial engineering, they look for, you know, certain, um, analytical rigor that's important, again, more foundationally just to get early on in order to, to understand, you know, some of the nuances of, of you know, the investing mechanism. For me, I really look for when I hire three things, you know, I look for passion for technology, right, particularly digital health. I look at analytical horsepower and the ability to get to the so what. And I look for what I call original thought, right? Um, there's a lot of lemmings in this business who think a lot of the same things. And I want somebody who can challenge and push back and look at the market in a way that's unique um, because ultimately that's, that's what we as a, as a, 
an, an industry are really trying to do. Right, 100%. And, and that was very helpful in terms of how you outlined things that you're looking for. I think that would be helpful for those that are listening who, who really want to make, make that jump. Um, so now I wanna transition into talking more about your time so far at Seven Bar Adventures. Um, so could, first, could you tell us a little bit about the investing model at Seven Wire? Our thesis is focused on what we call empowering an informed, connected health consumer. So everything that we do is about helping people to become better stewards of their own health and really thinking about how healthcare technology and services can meet people where they are. And for us, it's really about how we're giving people access to information, connecting them into the system to help them improve their own health outcomes. You know, I mentioned that we're an operator-driven model and we get very involved with our companies. We typically invest series A stage. We'll sometimes, you know, uh, opportunistically go late seed or early B. We really need to make sure though that we have the economics to justify the kind of involvement that we have in a business. And because of our focus, we can be quite creative. So we both invest in companies and we do start companies. Mm -hmm. So most notably, we started a business called Lavongo. And that business we took public in 2019. And then in 2020, we merged with Teladoc Health in an $18.5 billion transaction. We've started a couple of others since. We're actually thinking about a new co right now. Um, and our LP base is about 60% strategic. So health plans providers, pharma execs, self-insured employers to work with us, to work with our companies, um, really as, as customers of our companies, as co-investors, or even sometimes as lead investors. When you were talking about the thesis and the model at Seven More Adventures, you um, have alluded to the idea that you're trying to empower the quote-unquote informed, connected health consumer. Um, so how i have a two-part question so how one is how are your portfolio companies working to achieve this like i don't know if there are a few that you can you can highlight and then the second is what are some barriers to to really achieving this informed connected health consumer sure so all of our companies really are focused on solving a material problem that consumers have right there's a lot of meaning problems in healthcare there's problems that providers have and delivering care and workflow automation and red cycle management. But again, my true north is really focused on how you and I can can really help ourselves get from sick care to well care. And so I'll give a couple of examples of companies. You know, one is a company that's focused in behavioral health, um, particularly around severe mental illness. It's called NOCD, N-O-C-D. It's focused on severe mental illness, particularly obsessive compulsive disorder. And this is a company that has provided an opportunity, you know, both with teletherapy, um, but also community support tools and resources for this population. And so it's very difficult to get access to care. OCD specialists are too and far between. Um, they are incredibly costly um, for the average consumer. And, and really what ends up happening is it's incredibly um, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And so eventually when people land in claims data, they typically are showing up with severe anxiety, substance use disorder, eating disorders, but the root cause was actually their OCD. And so this is a business that is empowering these people, not only with the teletherapy opportunity, 
but also with the tools and resources that they need to manage their daily lives outside of a therapy session and really delivering care in the context of where their triggers lie. Mm-hmm. I'll give maybe two other examples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one is a business called um, Zerigo, Z-E-R-I-G-O, and this is for people with chronic skin conditions. So if you have, uh, think psoriasis, you'll go, you'll get a topical steroid, 60% of people will fail that treatment. And what you're supposed to do is get something called UVB light therapy. The problem is light therapy is only really available in 10% of dermatologist offices. And it's basically going and standing in a giant tanning bed. And oh, people have to do that three to four times a week for four months at a time. So what happens? Nobody really does it. And so what they do instead um, is they skip that clinically appropriate step. And instead they go on a biologic, a Humira, a Cosentix, you know, drugs that are immunosuppressants, which is not a great thing to be on in a pandemic that have really severe side effects. Um, And ultimately it's a really poor consumer experience and it's really expensive for a health plan. And so Zerigo has created the first handheld UVB light therapy device. You can actually deliver the therapy in the comfort of your own home, right? You can watch TV, you can do it, you know, a couple seconds here, there, do your treatment, and then you can get access to your data and you can see your progress and you can be empowered to continue, you know, to move your treatment forward because psoriasis is both chronic and acute, right? You'll have flare-ups, but it'll never go away. And so it's really, again, about empowering people. Um, maybe the last company I'll mention um, is, is a business called called Jasper Health. It's just an, in oncology, really supporting people in their cancer care journey. Um, cancer now, in a positive way, is starting to transition from just completely acute to more of a chronic condition. The negative piece, though, is that now folks are managing this condition for years and years, and it's incredibly complex. In addition now, you know, chemotherapy in about 50% of the time now is an oral chemotherapy, but the adherence on the regimen is incredibly low because it's so complex. And basically consumers were screaming from the rooftops, we need help, right? We have five new providers. I got this life-changing diagnosis. I have five new providers. I have all these new medications. I have to track my nutrition and my symptoms and my, um, you know, kind of daily, daily schedule and my um, provider visits. And it's just, complicated. And so, you know, we've built a real tool to support people and help the navigation of their cancer care journey. When thinking back to when you were getting ready to to invest in in some of these companies that you mentioned, um, what were, what were some of the factors that you were considering when you decided to invest? And I guess a corollary to that is specifically looking at the founders, what are some qualities that you were trying to find in, in the founders that compelled you to, to invest? Sure, so maybe we'll focus on team first. Um, you know, team is incredibly important, particularly in the early stages. I think we want somebody that has a balance of humility, but also hunger, right? A drive to build and grow. These are not your traditional lifestyle businesses. You know, venture-backed businesses will grow anywhere from 100 to 500% year over year plus, right? They'll, every 12 to 18 months, they'll usually run out of money. I mean, it's, it's a quite a high pace 
um, high flying world. And I think you want somebody that has the appetite and the stamina in which to do so, but also somebody that's humble enough to, and, and has the humility to admit when there are things that, you know, they, they know and they admit what they don't know. Um, and I think that comes with a coachability of asking for help. You know, we can't, nobody can be all things to all people. And the best CEOs are the ones that surround themselves with fantastic team members um, who can really elevate the business altogether. Um, I also, in particular, you know, two things that are I like to see, you know, one, I do like to see folks that have a knowledge of healthcare. It's very hard to completely de novo build a healthcare business without really understanding it. Um, you can have people on the team that don't fully understand healthcare and come from other industries, but I do think it's um, it becomes a bit more challenging with no healthcare experience. I also, um, I tend to really love storytellers. I think the power of storytelling is so important. I feel like there are so many facets, particularly in a CEO's job, whether it be recruiting talent, whether it be fundraising, whether it be selling to customers, where storytelling is such an asset that, you know, investing in a strong storyteller is really important. Um, and I want someone that's honest, you know, this is a marriage. I'm investing in this business for the next five to seven years of my life and sitting on this board. And I want to make sure that they feel, um, and we feel that, you know, there's a real trust and, and, and truthfulness that comes with that relationship. As an investor, and especially early on, how do you develop the confidence to pursue a differentiated view um, or, you know, go down some uncharted path, um, especially when it comes to investing in digital health? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have um, some inherent ability to accept risk, particularly as an early stage investor. But I, you know, a lot of what I do is it's not pie in the sky, you know, let me throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. It's really thematically driven. And so I do a lot of work on the upfront where I research market opportunities. I look at white space. Um, I look at every company and I give myself a frame of, of, of perspective on where I think that there's material opportunity to service the market. And then I go out and I find companies in that space. And so, and if I can't find any, I start them. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of, um, you know, what influences my decision-making is the data on, again, giving me a good perspective on where I see the landscape and how I see market tailwinds or headwinds affecting you know, that particular segment. Yeah, I wanted to shift and think about and talk about digital health more broadly. Um, I mean, with the COVID pandemic and 2020 and everything, um, we saw the growth and acceleration and adoption of telehealth. And that's just one small portion of, of digital health, but how do you think the COVID pandemic has shaped or influenced innovation within digital health? Yeah, I'd say, you know, there's probably three, three vectors of how it shaped it. The first is obviously with consumers themselves and we, you know, nobody wants to be a consumer of healthcare. And unfortunately in COVID, 
um, we all became consumers of the system and a lot of the challenges that existed today became even more um, present as we sought to seek education, answers, um, access to care, vaccination, you know, testing, vaccinations, et cetera. And so consumers became, I think, more educated on what this process is, where the process are limitations, and more vocal on some of the things that they need. I also feel generationally, some of the younger generations are a lot more vocal about their health care. There's a lot more data now on preventative health and why it's important. Um, and that really has trickled down and started to now influence the broader healthcare population. The second is on the incumbents. And so what you've seen from health plans, what you've seen from providers in the pandemic, I mean, they really had to evaluate, you know, on the provider side, it was really hard. I think a lot of initiatives that they had, they had to put aside to focus on the pandemic, but they also had to focus on efficiencies um, and scalability that they weren't able to do in the past. And it became sort of a catalyst for them to figure out care delivery in a different mechanism where they never really had that same sense of urgency. And then with health plans, you know, I think health plans actually did quite well in the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. but they really focused on partnering with a lot of digital solutions because that's where there was major tailwinds and major opportunities to deploy and disseminate real access to care that helps them drive and improved outcomes, even though nobody could leave their house. And the third vector is really the regulatory environment. So you mentioned telehealth. There was a lot of barriers that got broken down that hopefully won't get rebuilt as we think about, you know, some of the, um, you know, FDA emergency use, some of the uh, restrictions around state licensing that got that got um, lowered, some of the mm -hmm. what constitutes the visit, um, obviously in terms of telehealth reimbursement. And so you start to see now. That that there really there were a lot of regulatory limitations on um, which was causing some hindrance on on innovation. Another question I had with regards to just digital health in general is, what what areas do you think are not receiving enough attention, and you feel like there really needs to be more innovation in the space, and maybe it just hasn't been done because. Um, it's just too costly, or there are just a lot high barriers to entry, et cetera. Um, I, I actually don't feel that there hasn't been enough innovation in areas that are too costly. I think that's actually one of the easiest drivers to innovate in healthcare. If you look at, you know, oncology, cardiology, MSK, right? That's some of the biggest areas of, of especially a lot of the. the big digital health companies, particularly just because the spend is so high. I think where there's a bit of backwards thinking sometimes is that we often rely on claims data to be our source of truth where, and I'll use, you know, NoCD as an example. If you go to a payer and you ask me uh, how many, you know, people do you have with OCD, they're going to look at that data and say like, oh, you know, very few, right? When in reality, 2% plus of the population actually has this condition and more when it comes to comorbidities. And so the challenge is by the time, I mentioned this at the beginning, but when they end up in the claims data, they're not actually showing up as the, the real undercore of the diagnosis of what it should be. And I think there's a lot of other analogs that follow that same mechanism of, you know, women's health is a great example where, you know, eventually there's a lot of preventative work that can be done in the outset um, that eventually, you know, may show up and as, as other conditions or other challenges, 
when in reality it stems from you know a certain gynecological condition or um, you know GI as well. And so I think there's a bit of an ROI fight right now of what exactly is the ROI on these um, because this, the healthcare spend doesn't look very big when in reality um, it is very high. It's just the system is reattributing it in not exactly the correct way. I have one final question and just to kind of round out the, the discussion. So do you have any advice for, for women interested in changing digital health, either as an entrepreneur or an investor? Well, like what's the one key piece of advice you would give to them? There's no such thing as strangers. Don't, don't tell my little kids that right now. <laughs> there's such a strong network of such amazing women and amazing people in this industry. Um, and, and really, you know, utilizing that and bringing brain power together versus boxing it out. And I think as, you know, we, we, you're in, in school right now, um, you know, whether it be an academic environment, a professional environment, a personal environment, there's so many people, particularly, you know, throughout the course of your life, so many people from my advisory board days are coming back into my life and, you know, are, are helping transform healthcare for the better. And I would just advise everybody to utilize, you know, the, the people around them. My philosophy is ideas are worth nothing. Execution is everything. And share your ideas, get feedback, and really focus on the best way to deploy to make the biggest difference. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at thehc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jane. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.